All right, we're going to open with uh, a couple of verses from John chapter 5, which uh, happened to be the text of this very large excerpt from a Samuel Davies sermon that's in the middle of your handout. This is just an excerpt from a a longer sermon. And I I would love to read some of it during uh, the hour this morning. I'm afraid that we won't have even time to get to it, so that's why I definitely wanted to get it in on the handout for you to read whether we get to it or not. But this sermon by Davies took as its text the words of Jesus out of John chapter 5. So I'm going to read this now and then we'll begin. These are Jesus' words. Truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself and hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Marvel not at this for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth and they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words of yours. Help us to abide by them and be present with us now as we talk again for a little while about the great things that you have done in this world and you continue to do even to this day, uh, even in this very hour, as your people gather all across the country and even the world. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the throne of grace to which we can come with childlike boldness and free access because of the great and perfect work accomplished by Jesus, Uh, that which he finished on the cross and that which he continues as he intercedes for us continually before that throne. We thank you, Father, for your eternal electing love. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who does all these things for us, and for your Holy Spirit, whom he sent into the world and into our hearts so that all of his benefits may be actually given to us and put in our hand and in our hearts and our bosoms, as it were, that we might finally be brought into glory with him, to be with him, even, Lord Jesus, as you pray, that we might be with you where you are at, to behold your glory, which the Father gave you, that Father who loved you before the foundation of the world and who now loves us, in exactly the same way. It's incomprehensible. But as believers in your word, we, it is our duty to believe these things with a heart full of faith. So we thank you for all of these things. Be with us now as we talk about these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we covered David Brainerd. And uh, we basically looked through a five-year period of time at the end of his life from 1742 to 47. Uh, We looked at his, to begin with, his expulsion from Yale over the incident about uh, his tutor having, as he said, no more grace than this chair that he was leaning on. He was expelled for that, for being critical. Uh, Then we looked at his missionary work in in Economique, in the Forks of Delaware, and finally at Cross Weekson, where the Spirit of God really worked extraordinarily among the Indians there in New Jersey. Uh, And then to his final days as he went to the home of Jonathan Dickinson and then finally made it to the home of Edwards in Northampton 
and the last four months or so of his life were spent there until he died in October of 1747. And in the course of that five-year window of time, we also looked at the founding of Princeton, uh, of which the incident with Brainerd was, was a, a very strong factor, among other things. So we looked at the founding of Princeton. That was in 1746. Well, in that, the same five-year period that we were looking at Brainerd, we want to stay there this morning and just look at ex- exactly in that period what was transpiring in the South, not in New Jersey and Pennsylvania uh, and New York, but mainly in the, in the colony of Virginia. That's where we're going, again, in the same window of time. So keep that in mind. We're not chronologically moving forward. We're, Brainerd is doing all of the things we talked about last week while we're, we're discovering what we're looking at this week. And mainly we want to look at it through the activities of three men, Samuel Morris, William Robinson, and uh, Samuel Davies. Samuel Davies, who is one of the great, great, great figures in the kind of Great Awakening, post-Great Awakening years. Uh, yeah, we'll have more to say about Davies. I, I want to say it all right now, and, and uh, I can't do that. So in the winter of, of 1742-43, when Brainerd was just beginning his missionary duties, just getting ready to go to economy, there was another missionary of sorts that was sent down into the southern colonies. He was a recent graduate of the Log College, another Log College graduate. I mean, we just keep coming across these time and time again. So he was making its way south into the remoter parts in the frontier of Virginia. Now, Virginia, it's important to remember, had an established religion, and it was, it was the Church of England. So there were some dissenting groups, but it was very tenuous. Depending on who the governor, the royal governor was at the time, they were given more or, or sometimes severely less liberty of freedom of worship. So everyone, by rule of law, had to attend their, their local Anglican church and submit to the Anglican rector. So that was the case in Virginia. Well, the man I'm talking about here, this law college graduate, is William Robinson. Very important man. Uh, not much written about him in history. He didn't write too much about himself either. So it's kind of sketchy what we have about him. But again, there's a, there's a full chapter about him in the Log College by Archibald Alexander, who, if I fail to mention Archibald Alexander, I keep mentioning his name as a great authority. Uh, but then it occurred to me uh, that I didn't mention, and you may or may not know, but he was the first professor and president of Princeton Seminary, which grew out of Princeton College, which we looked at the founding last week, and that was, an, that was 1812 that Princeton Seminary was founded, and it was a rock-solid uh, institution all through the 19th century after that. Archibald Alexander was basically the founder, uh, in a sense, the, the first professor. They only had one when they started, much like Dickinson was the you know, president and only professor of, of Princeton when it started in his home. So 1812, Archibald Alexander, and and Alexander, there's an old, it may be hard to get, but a a great biography of Alexander. He's a wonderful figure in the early years of Presbyterianism in America. So a a name that that carries great authority and respect. So anyhow, back to his book, The Law College. There's a chapter on William Robinson uh, in there. And that's where mostly, there's a few other small sources, but that's mostly where I've gleaned everything I have to say 
about Robinson. He was originally, that is, Robinson was originally from England, Carlisle, England. He was the son of a wealthy Quaker, and uh, he did not grow up in a strongly religious situation. Uh, when he came of age, he took a trip to London, uh, in essence, to sow his wild oats. Uh, he went to London, he, he lived like a profligate, apparently, to all accounts, spent a lavish amount of his father's money, and then realized that his father was not going to be very pleased with him when he returned home. And so he, he got a hold of a, a very wealthy aunt that lived in London and begged her to give him the money for passage on a ship to America. So he, he was looking to run away from home. He realized he had, he had uh, crossed the line and uh, he was not, not, uh, not likely to go back to his father at this point. So he broke off that relationship entirely. He persuaded his aunt, after some reluctance, to pay passage for him. So he came to America uh, providentially into the area of New Brunswick in New Jersey. He took up uh, a teaching job as a tutor, which was a, which was a common occupation that young men could take up in those times uh, when you didn't really have institutional education. And if you found a wealthy person with children, you could, you could uh, apply to be their tutor. And then sometimes that would grow up into little small schools, which sprouted up all over the country at this time. So this is what William Robinson did, still unconverted. Well, he, and he does give a short account of this, but it's very spotty. He, he, he says of himself that one late night he was riding home on horseback and, and the stars in the sky were just shining exceedingly bright and he was, he was really captured and arrested uh, and awed by thinking about the creator of all of this. He must be, he must be so full of grandeur and majesty. And then a second thought occurred to him and it, it just pierced his heart. And that is, what do I know about this great God of majesty? Surely, if he's my creator as well as the stars, uh, I'm obliged to be in a right relationship with him and to know him at some level. And that just pierced his heart. And that, that was the beginning of his conversion, which we know nothing of. We don't, all we know is what I just told you uh, about his conversion. But he, he soon was soundly converted. Uh, determined very shortly that he was being called into the ministry, into the gospel ministry. And so he went to the only place that, that he knew about at the time, and that was the law college. He was there in that area, and he knocked on the door, and there was the senior William Tennant uh, opening the door to him. Welcome him in. They had a good conversation, and he was admitted to the school. And so now he became a log college student. By the summer of 1741, and again, just to, to connect ourselves with contemporary events, summer of 1741, we were just approaching the Yale commencement of which we spoke uh, just a few weeks ago when Edwards was there and the whole blow up with Davenport and Brainerd was there. So this is, this is exactly what's going on at the time when Robinson finally completed his studies with Tennant in the Log College and was ordained, not, not as a pastor to a particular congregation, but as an itinerant evangelist. And there was a great need for this, because primarily in the South, if you remember Whitfield's uh, tour in America several years earlier, and he had gone up and down the coast. He went through the Carolinas, down into Georgia and Virginia, and through the course of all of his preaching, 
There were, particularly in the South, where people... Whitfield himself was an Anglican, but he was not uh, an object of pleasure or acceptance among most of the Anglican church. There was a few here and there that accepted him, but most barred him from the doors. And so he preached outdoors and uh, to many Anglicans who had come to hear him preach. And many of these were converted. Many of them had just come under conviction of sin, but they had nowhere to go because if they went to the, the, the uh, Anglican rector, he had nothing but, again to use Tennant's phrase, uh, uh, untempered mortar to give them, mixing their own works. I mean, they, the, 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 the Anglican church, although they were and are, should be committed to the 39 articles, which are very reformed, if you read them closely. It's a strong, strong uh, confession of faith and document. Uh, but they, they more or less slighted and ignored those articles. And so the doctrines of original sin, the doctrines of regeneration, uh, the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone, these were all disregarded and even despised and considered, uh, particularly in the wake of the, the uh, awakenings, they considered these kind of doctrines, which they knew the awakening preachers were preaching, as the spawn of, of disorder and wildness, again, because of the excesses. So these were enthusiasts, they called them. So this was the situation between the Anglican Church and all of those kind of outcasts that had come under the spell of Whitfield when he came through. So there were little congregations, and you can't call them churches, at the time that, that were forming just organically, that were kind of a, kind of a, uh, a hodgepodge of true converts, true born-again Christians, and those that were still under conviction of sin and groping, as it were, to use Peter's language, uh, if haply they might seek after and find God. That, that, these were the kinds of congregations. And they had no pastor, they had nowhere to turn to. So that was the situation, and that's what William Robinson was sent to as an itinerant evangelist to go down and minister to these various groups uh, from locale to locale in primarily Virginia, but also in the Carolinas. He spent a good bit of time in the Carolinas, but Virginia, as it turns out, is where the bulk of his ministry transpired. This was toward the end of 1742, finally, that he was sent. So it was, it was uh, close to a year after he was actually ordained till he actually made the trek down on horseback, uh, which was except for walking, was the only mode of transportation at this time. Uh, toward the end of 42, he, he, he finally made his way to the south. And this, again, to keep Brainerd in mind, as, as we're moving along on parallel tracks in different parts of the country, Brainerd had just been commissioned at this time by Dickinson and Burr and Pemberton. So this is right at the entrance of Brainerd into his missions work, uh, mission work among the Indians that William Robinson was being sent down into the south, not to Indians, but to these groups of, of converts that, that uh, we just described. We spent the winter of 1742-43 traveling, as I said, through Virginia and the Carolinas. Samuel Davies, who we're going to get to in just a few minutes, who turned out to be William Robinson's successor and the first permanent pastor of a number of these congregations, Samuel Davies, says this about William Robinson. I cannot recollect one place in which he had officiated for any time where there were not some illustrious effects of his ministry. He had a noble ambition to preach the gospel 
where Christ was not named. He was a bright meteor, blazing in the light of God wherever he went. Love to God and souls. And that's, I have to stop there because this is so much like George Whitfield. Love to God and souls. Uh, that inclusion of his fellow man and the burning love for them is, is really what marked out so much of Whitfield's success as well as the success of Robinson. So love to God and souls bore him on over every possible infirmity and obstacle. Archibald Alexander, again, uh, to enlist his authority, says, says this, and again, it's a strong statement, but we just take it at face value. Probably, Alexander says, probably Mr. Robinson during the short period of his life was the instrument in the conversion of as many souls as any minister who ever lived in this country. That's, that's an amazing statement, particularly when you consider the effect of Whitfield. So I don't even know how it can be true, but I'm just quoting what Archibald Alexander says about this man who uh, virtually no one in the church has ever heard of today, William Robinson. Well, one of the congregations, and there were a number of them, one of them that Robinson came to was in Hanover County, Virginia. This is, this is right in the Richmond area now go to Richmond, you'll be right in the heart of where this congregation is that we're talking about, and where, as it turns out, Davies would have spent uh, a number of years ministering. So in the Richmond area of Virginia, as I said, Anglicanism was the established religion, but Davies says this of the Anglican church clergy at this time, they universally embraced the system of Arminian divinity. The Calvinistic, and these, again, are Davies' words, the Calvinistic, or rather the Pauline Articles of their own church are counted by them to be horrendous so that the people for the most part that were attending the Anglican church were ignorant and indifferent as to the great things of eternity. So again, that's, 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 that is the religious atmosphere in Virginia at the time under, under the auspices of the Anglican church. Yet Davies adds this to what he just said. He said, but there have been a few among them who are sincerely seeking the Lord and, after, and groping after religion in the communion of the Church of England. Well, now we want, to, we want to move from Robinson. We'll come back to him, but we want to just take a break from Robinson to look at one of these men uh, who started a number of these congregations who was in the Church of England but was seeking after, if happily he might find him again, to keep quoting Peter in the book of Acts. One of these young man was uh, a man named Samuel Morris. Now, even attending the Anglican Church, he had come under conviction of sin and didn't know where to turn for any kind of counsel or advice. Certainly the rector was, was no help at all. In fact, his rector, uh, just an interesting historical coincidence, his rector was Patrick Henry, not the famous patriot, but his uncle, Patrick Henry. And uh, he was a man who really had no taste for the, for the gospel or the true saving doctrines of it. So he was no help at all to Samuel Morris. So he sought elsewhere uh, in a book. This is so often the case. He found a book. I have no idea uh, how he came upon it, but it was the same book that was instrumental in the conversion of Charles Wesley. If you remember what that was, the commentary of Martin Luther on the book of Galatians, on Paul's letter to Galatians. He got a hold of this and just drank it and ate it. And through it, he was soundly and strongly converted and filled with a zeal now for his neighbors, who he knew many of, of whom were going through the same ordeal that he had been going through. 
But through Luther's counsel and spiritual uh, advice, uh, he, he became a genuine Christian. He began inviting his neighbors that he knew had issues, and some who didn't, he didn't even know, some of them. He began inviting them to his house, saying, I have something to read to you. And so he, he, he set himself up as a reader in his own house as he invited his friends, and he began reading Luther's commentary on Galatians. And uh, they had never heard these kinds of things before. Soon he added other Puritan works uh, going beyond Luther. He read Bunyan, uh, Baxter, Richard Baxter, John Flavel. These were all some of the great Puritans that he began reading to kind of mix up the reading so he wasn't always reading exactly the same thing. No preaching. He didn't know how to preach. Uh, He just read the very things that he knew had soundly converted himself. Well, they had never heard any of these things before. Again, the doctrines that I mentioned, original sin, justification, uh, imputation, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, the imputation of Adam's sin, uh, sanctification, all of these great doctrines. Uh, sanctification, namely, rooted in the work of Christ, in his death and burial and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the majesty on high. These, these are the sanctification that the Anglican Church would have preached, would again have been so rooted in their own efforts uh, to obtain the favor of God in the very first place. Luther and these others, Flavel, had it, had it reversed. Sanctification comes through the new creature laboring in the energies of the Spirit who's bringing to them the virtue of Christ's death. And we're going in that through Romans 6 right now in the sermons. So this, these were very exciting things for Morris. And his friends, little by little, uh, began softening. Some of them were converted. Well, about this time, Whitfield was passing through the colonies, uh, into Williamsburg, actually, and a number of them wanted to go because they had heard of Whitfield's fame. Every American had heard of Whitfield's fame. I mean, it was unavoidable. They wanted to go, uh, but by the time they could actually make their way, Whitfield had already passed through, so they missed Whitfield. But now Whitfield's works began appearing in print after he preached his sermons. And so uh, Morris got a hold of a book of Whitfield's sermons and added them to the mix of the Puritans and Luther, began reading the sermons of Whitfield, Well, this is what Morris says himself of the effect of reading Whitfield's sermons to his neighbors. The plainness, he says, the plainness and fervency of these discourses being attended with the power of the Lord, many were convinced of their undone condition and constrained to seek deliverance with the greatest solicitude. The concern of some was such that they could not avoid crying out, weeping bitterly. You see, again, there's no preaching going on here. He's simply reading word for word the ink on the pages. And you see what the Holy Spirit is doing with the truth of the gospel, these saving doctrines. So, uh, I mean, we can't say enough about the influence of good good books. Uh, certainly books by living authors, but uh, dead authors are even better. <laughs> well, Morris's house he said was no longer sufficient. There were too many people coming in, gathering around, uh, up against the walls, crowding in as he was reading. And so he took it upon himself to build other buildings. He built several more reading rooms. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I hadn't told you that he even built the first one. He outgrew his house, built a reading room, outgrew that, and had to build more reading rooms. So uh, 
at some point they had, had four reading rooms scattered out over about a 40-mile period, and he appointed other men to read these books. That's all they were doing, no preaching, just reading. Reading sermons and, and theological works. Well, by now, the authorities noticed that there was a lot of absences at the Anglican Church, where they were bound by law again to attend. And so Morris and, and his group of friends were summoned, at least those that were the leaders among them, were summoned to Williamsburg to appear at the court before the governor in Williamsburg. William Gooch was the governor at this time. Well, they, they were being called to declare their denomination. Why are you absenting yourself from the church? Uh, what, 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 what is your justification? Who are you? What are you? So they had decided to call themselves, before they got there, Lutherans, because of Luther's influence on them through the book that they were reading. Uh, but on their journey, and there's a number of different versions of this account, uh, I'll just give you one of them. Uh, they were caught in a thunderstorm, stopped overnight at a man's house, they described their predicament to him, and he handed them a little book. And they read it and said, this is exactly what we have come to believe. Well, it was a copy of the Westminster Confession. So they decided they were Presbyterians. Uh, this suits us even better than what we've seen uh, in Luther. And so they made their way to Williamsburg. They appeared before the governor and declared themselves uh, Presbyterians. Well, that was a providential stroke because even though the governor, William Gooch, was an Anglican and a strong Anglican, he was actually a native Scotsman. He grew up in Scotland, was very familiar with the Westminster Confession and the Scottish Church and had a soft spot in his heart for those things. And so he granted them a limited amount of toleration. He didn't throw the hammer of the law down on them. Go home, be peaceful, and carry on. So this was a wonderful stroke for them. So they returned as Presbyterians. Uh, they applied, apparently, they applied to the, the, the uh, Presbytery of New Brunswick. For a minister now. Well, if we're Presbyterians, we have, we, we have a little bit of right here to appeal to the Presbytery that's closest to us or that we're familiar with uh, for a pastor. And so they did so. And in answer to their plea, Robinson, who was down there at the time, apparently going into different places, was informed that he should come to this, this group of seekers. And so Robinson did come. He arrived on July 6th, 1743. And again, we're, we're thinking at this time Brainerd's work and his increasing terminal illness growing on him as he's ministering to the Indians in 1743. He would have been leaving the Forks of Delaware at this time and going to cross Weeksome. Well, Robinson preached for four days in a row, and each successive day more people from the surrounding community showed up. It is hard, and I'm, I'm going to quote Morris here, it is hard for the liveliest imagination to form an image of the condition of the assembly on these glorious days of the Son of Man. Such of us as had been hungering for the word before were lost in an agreeable confusion of various passions, surprised, astonished, pleased, enraptured, so that we were hardly capable of self-government. I'm glad he put the word hardly in there. Hardly capable of self-government. Some could not refrain from publicly declaring their transport. 
again, this is a scene outside of the, the realm of the Great Awakening now. This is, this is a, a, a little bit afterwards, after it was dying down, but we see the work of the Spirit uh, working in the same way. We were overwhelmed with the unexpected goodness of God. Many that came through curiosity only were now pricked to the heart, but few in the numerous assemblies on these four days appeared unaffected in one way or another. They returned to their homes astonished, alarmed with apprehensions of their dangerous condition, convinced of their former entire ignorance of religion, and anxiously inquiring what they should do to be saved. So now is the time that I had gotten ahead of myself earlier that more reading rooms were built under the auspices of, of Morris. So you had four reading rooms now, and he appointed readers, and he, he also, under Robinson's instruction, he was there for such a brief time, but Robinson did everything he could to move them in the direction of, of, of being established churches, not the established religion, but churches in their own right with the ordinances and so forth. Uh, they weren't complete yet, but he instituted psalm singing uh, and, and public prayers. But still, you only had readers in each of these places. There, there were no pastors in any of these congregations. Well, Robinson, his time was up. It was time for him to leave. As he prepared to leave, the people all got together and gave him a large sum of money to thank him for his work there, which was invaluable. Uh, he refused, said, no, I, I'm not going to take any money for this. Uh, so he left and quite a distance up the road he stopped at some point and uh, in his saddlebags was the money that they had secreted in there they, they, were, they were going to give it to him whether he wanted it or not so he turned around and went all the way back gave it back to him and said I really can't take this money uh, I'm preaching the gospel to you at no cost as Christ commanded in this case so they begged him, pleaded please Please take it. And then an idea came to his mind about a student that he had previously taught back in the, his tutor days that he knew for a fact at the time was studying under Samuel Blair. Well, we know something about Samuel Blair. Remember uh, last week or two weeks ago, he and, Will, and, and Gilbert Tennant were those that, that resisted the examining act uh, that Archibald Alexander had, had so much to say about, well, he was a graduate, Samuel Blair was a graduate of the Law College. We, even several weeks earlier, we looked at him at his congregation in New Londonderry, Pennsylvania, where the, the Spirit worked mightily there in the, in the conversion of quite a number of souls. Well, Samuel Blair was teaching Samuel Davies at the time. So Samuel Davies was not a Law College man, but he was, he was a student of a man of the Law College. So a number of these schools sprouted up that, that Law College graduates established where they, they began bringing in young, young men and boys to train them up for the ministry. Well, this was the case that Samuel Davies was in, but Samuel Davies had, had very poor parents. Uh, he didn't really have means, and so it struck Robinson immediately when these people were pressing on him to take the money. I can bring the money, give it to Samuel Davies, if he's willing, when he finishes his, his education with Blair, he can come down and actually be their permanent pastor. He thought that this is, this is definitely a viable solution to the problem. So that's what he did, and the people were very happy that he took the money. Well, so Samuel Davies. Now we come to Samuel Davies. Uh, Davies is in our hymn book. I, think, I believe it's number 71. Great God of wonders. Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, godlike, and divine. 
but the fair glories of thy grace, more godlike and unrivaled shine. That's Samuel Davies. He was not only a great preacher, uh, he was a a hymn writer as well. He wrote a number of hymns, but this is the only one that made it into the Trinity hymn book. Lloyd-Jones, I forget if I mentioned this earlier or not, but uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says of Davies that you Americans know almost nothing about him, but he's the greatest preacher that America ever produced. And he says this even over Jonathan Edwards, which again is is hard to believe that he said it, but he did say it. I'm quoting Lloyd-Jones, the greatest preacher America ever ever produced, Samuel Davies. Well, Davies Davies was something of, of of a mix between two men that we're already quite familiar with, and that is... Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, really the two great figures of this whole class. He had the intellect of Jonathan Edwards. He had the ebullience and the, and the expressive passion of George Whitfield. So he kind of combined the greatest gifts of both of these men into his single person. In fact, Samuel Finley, and I'll read this briefly out of the handout at the bottom, Samuel Finley, who was also a Log College graduate and who succeeded Davies. I, mean, I know I'm giving you a lot of facts here, but succeeded Davies as president of Princeton. Uh, So Finley is a man, we're not going to talk about him at all, but I I want to quote from him and his comment of Samuel Davies. His natural temper was remarkably sweet and dispassionate. His heart was tender towards the distressed. His natural genius was strong and masculine. His understanding was clear, his invention quick, his imagination lively and florid, his thoughts sublime and his language elegant, strong and expressive. Again, you see Edwards and and Whitfield both kind of combined in this description. In the pulpit, zeal for God and love to men animated his addresses and made them tender, solemn, pungent and persuasive. A certain dignity of sentiment, a venerable presence, a commanding voice, and emphatical delivery concurred both to charm his audience and overawe them into silence and attention. He shone like a light set in a high place that burns out and expires. And the reason he, he, he burns out and expires because he was only 37, Davies was, when he died. And we're, we're going to make our way very quickly to that point uh, in Davies' life, namely his death. So... Davies was licensed in the summer of 1746. He was, by February of the next year, making his way, according to Robinson's promise, uh, down to the pastorless congregation. Seven of them now. Pastorless congregations. I'm sorry, four of them. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself because things grew when Davies got down there. So, four pastorless congregations around the Hanover area, Richmond, Virginia. He took charge of the four reading rooms and it was in the saddle just going from one reading room to the next, preaching Sunday after Sunday, even during the week. And the people would gather in these reading rooms and hear Davies preach to them. Well, he was so worn out, very quickly, he always had a weak constitution, his his health broke, and he became deathly ill, deathly ill, uh, at, at, at very close to the time when Brainerd was deathly ill. So Davies assumed he was dying, Thought he was going to die. Uh, this is in the summer of 1747. Princeton's first class is studying in Jonathan Dickinson's home. And as I said, Brainerd now was in Edward's home in Northampton, just weeks away from his own death. Well, Davies, says a friend, at this time was in this condition. He was judged 
by the doctor to be in deep and irrecoverable consumption, that is tuberculosis, that's what the doctor said that he had, without any hopes of recovery. He preached in the day and had his fever by night, and to such a degree as to be sometimes delirious. Added to this, uh, Davies had just gotten married. He had a young wife, they had been married for just about a year, and she was heavily with child at this time. Well, she gave premature birth, and the child died, and she died too. So all this is in the first year of their marriage, while Davies was laying there deathly sick. So his wife died along with their son. He writes in his own diary, September 15th, 1747, separated from her by death and bereaved of an abortive son. So, I mean, he's down in the depths at this point, obviously, for quite a number of reasons. Little by little, he did recover. He didn't die like Brainerd did. By the spring of 1748, he was beginning to mend. He could travel again. He added three more. This is when he added three more meeting houses to the original force. And now there are seven. And he was just constantly, as I said, in the saddle, traveling from one of these meeting houses to another, making his circuit. Uh, There's one of them only, a, a building that he preached in. There's one only that still stands in the Richmond area. Uh... When you're making your trip north to see all these other places, you, you, you go out, I think it's Interstate 64, out west out of Richmond, just not very many miles at all. There's a little town called Gum Springs, and there's the original wooden structure. You can go there, there's a little metal sign there posted there that Samuel Davies preached in this church. So stop by there sometime. Richmond isn't too far away. But it's the only of the seven that are still there. Well, Davies was described at this time, after he had just recovered from his sickness, as tall, slim, well-formed, but pale and wasted by disease. In the pulpit, it is said, whenever he ascended the pulpit, his personal appearance was august and venerable, yet benevolent and mild. What majesty and grandeur, energy and striking solemnity. He spoke as on the borders of eternity. It's a great phrase. He spoke as on the borders of eternity and as viewing the glories and terrors of an unseen world. Well, one example of that is the sermon in in your handout where he just portrays such a vivid, a vivid image of the general resurrection of the just and of the damned. Well, what was the substance of his preaching? I I, I feel like... uh, (laughs) I'm just going to be a broken record if I tell you, because it's the substance that we've seen week after week after week by all of these various men of different personalities. The divine perfections of God himself, the gravity of our natural condition, the all-sufficiency of Christ for the whole sinner, every need of the sinner, the necessity of a new heart and new affections. In other words, regeneration. That was, in some ways, the great distinguishing doctrine of the Great Awakening, the necessity of the new birth. So for the next decade now, beyond the death of Brainerd, Davies traveled this circuit, uh, logging thousands of miles, very often in the grip of recurring fever. Uh, Ever since his first near-death experience, uh, he was constantly succumbing to fever, uh, and yet continued to ride on horseback from meeting house to meeting house. Well, last week... We saw the birth of Princeton. Uh, Ten boys in Jonathan Dickinson's parlor. That's where it started. 
we want to continue that story just a little bit and now incorporate Davies into it because he got drawn into that circle of the Princeton men. Dickinson died just six months later after he started this school with the boys. Uh, in fact, he died just two days before Brainerd, if I'm not mistaken. Very much the same time, October 1747. Well, students moved from Dickinson's home to the man who was obviously next to take the students under his wing, and that was Aaron Burr, who we talked about also. Aaron Burr was, was only half the age of Dickinson, uh, but Aaron Burr brought them into his house in Newark, New Jersey, and was there for the next nine years with these students. And every year, the number of students grew until nine years later, there were 70. I'm not sure how he housed them all. He must have built something. But this is now Princeton, 10 years after it was established in, 50, in, in 1756, up to upwards of 70 students. And they were bursting at the seams under the presidency of Aaron Burr. Well, all during those years, when those students were with Burr, Davies was continuing his ministry, riding in the saddle from meeting house to meeting house, closely following the progress of the college. In 1753, in the midst of his ministry, he was tapped by the trustees of Princeton to go with Gilbert Tennant to England and Scotland to raise funds for the building that they clearly needed. So they traveled together, became close friends. Gilbert Tennant and, and the much younger Samuel Davies were, they were in Great Britain. They met all the luminaries that we've already talked about, the Wesleys, Whitfield. They met Isaac Watts. They came back with a large sum of money. Nassau Hall in Princeton, New Jersey was built, and it's there today, the original building that was built in 1756 from the funds that Davies and Tennant raised. Burr, now with his 70 students, relocated. They moved to Princeton, New Jersey, and he took up the President's House. In last week's handout, if you happen to still have it, you can see Nassau Hall and the President's House right in front. Well, Burr died the next year, right after they moved into Nassau Hall. There was a general epidemic there, and he succumbed and died. He was only 41 years old. He was replaced by Jonathan Edwards. We're going to come to him next week and his death, but Edwards was there for only months, not even a full year before he succumbed to smallpox and died. Well, now the trustees looked to Samuel Davies as the next man after Edwards. So he, re he reluctantly agreed after he was solicited a number of times by them. Finally, he was convinced it was the will of God. He preached his farewell sermon to the people of Hanover. And we'll close with this because we're, we are out of time. Farewell, he says, to his Hanover people as he's getting ready to go up to Princeton. Farewell, you saints of the living God, that God who will be your God forever, who will guide you by his counsel through the intricacies of life and then receive you into glory. This is a wonderful sermon in itself. I have known you, Davies says to his people, I have known you broken-hearted penitents, weeping seekers of Jesus, poor mortal creatures, sometimes trembling, sometimes rejoicing, but I hope yet to know you under a higher character. Glorious immortals, perfect in holiness, vigorous and bright as the rapt seraphs adore and burn at the throne of God. There, there it is that I hope to find some humble seat among you and spend a blessed eternity in the divine intimacy of immortal friendship without interruption. Therefore, adieu for a few years till death collects us to our common home in our Father's house above. We'll, we'll close there. We'll pick up right at the end of Davies and then go into Edwards and Whitfield and close out the entire class next week, Lord willing. Let's close in prayer.
Father, we again thank You for taking us into Your care through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be with us, Lord Jesus, in the hour to come in all of the ordinances. Meet us and call us into fellowship with Yourself. In Your great name we pray. Amen.